Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you would speak your word into our hearts and you would change our lives. We ask, O oh Lord, that uh, you would accomplish whatever your highest purpose is for each one in this room and online right now, and that we would be able to really bring you the honor you deserve. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, there's this guy, and he had a, he heard a knock on the door. <clears throat> so he goes to the door and opens the door and looks down, and there's a snail. So he reaches down, picks the snail up, and throws it as far as he can. Goes back in the house. Well, three years later, there's another knock on the door. <clears throat> he opened the door. It was that same snail. And the snail said, what the heck was that all about? <laughs> Have you ever just wondered, had something happened in your life and just wondered, what the heck was that all about? You wonder how I was going to connect that, didn't you? <clears throat> well, the question I want, I want you to think about some questions here for a moment. Think about how much of your life do you think is just happens by chance? And how much of your life do you think actually is God-orchestrated, God-purposing, God-actively arranging and disposing of the details of your life? Well, this morning we're going to consider a second attribute of God in our series, Knowing God, and that attribute is the sovereignty of God. In fact, if you take the word sovereign and look it up in a dictionary, you'd find word, words or phrases like superior, greatest, supreme in power and authority, ruler. I think the best way to describe really to give the definition for sovereignty of God is simply this. God is in control. There's absolutely nothing that happens in the universe that is outside of God's influence and authority. He orchestrates and determines everything that's going to happen in your life, in my life, in America, and throughout the world. Whatever he wants to do in the universe, he does. Nothing is impossible with him. Let's look at this passage as we start into this topic. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 and 10 says this. Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Listen to this now. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So here's the truth of this passage. God decided what the end was going to be way back in the beginning. And nothing can thwart the purposes of God. There's no, no downturn in the economy, no election results, no financial crises, no hurricane, 
no wildfire, nothing. He will accomplish all that he has set out to do, and nothing can stop it. There's no man or woman, boy or girl. There's no demon in hell. Nothing can stop it. What God has purposed to be done will be done. Now, it's real important, I think, that we have this correct view of God, particularly in our changing world, that we hold tightly to this understanding of God and all, and hold tightly to all his promises. Like last week, we focused on one particular promise as we talked about the goodness of God. And that promise was Romans 8.28. Let's just review it again real quick. Romans 8.28 says, And we know, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to to his purpose. So if you're a Christian, if you truly repented and turned to Jesus Christ and placed your faith in him as the Savior and Lord of your life, then you are now included in this promise. Because that includes you in this family of God, those who love him, those who are called according to purpose. And that means that all things in your life, even any type of financial crises, political crises, natural calamity, terrorist attack, you can go on and on, all things... All things, God says, will be turned for your good. You can have confidence in that. Nothing can thwart God's plan for that, nothing. Which, by the way, means that you know, everyone right now can just take a deep breath, let your shoulders kind of sag down, relax, because God is good and God is in control. Those two need to go together. He's good and he is in control. See, the future has already been decided for us. God decided the end in the beginning. He decided that we would win. He decided that, that things were going to be turned for our good. He already made that decision, and it can't be stopped. And knowing that should cause us to, to you know, approach life in a very different way than all the people around us that don't know Christ. There ought to be a sense of peace that just, that just lives in us and upon us. As we go through life, even though we don't know the details are coming on, we know that it's going to be turned for our good. Because God is good and he's in control. One time I was, there was a, it was a uh, NCAA basketball final game and I was, uh, I was in a meeting that I had figured out how to work the DVD player. So I was going to make sure it was, it was uh, taped and I would watch it later, and I didn't want anybody to tell me the results. So right after this meeting, I got in my truck, and I'm headed home, and I'm thinking, all right, I'm going to watch this game, and I don't know the outcome. And then I got a ding on my phone, <laughs> and before I had a chance to even think about what this could possibly be, I look at my phone, and it's a buddy of mine who says, I can't believe it, you're team one. And I'm like, no! Don't tell me. So I go home already knowing the results, but I still watch the game. Now, so as I'm watching this game, I know my team's going to win, but I still didn't know how. I didn't know all the details. I still got caught up in the flow of the game and the excitement of the game, but I never really was anxious about the outcome of the game. I could watch it being interested, but I wasn't anxious. Because I knew my team wins. See, the truth is, for us as Christians, the same thing 
is true of our lives. I mean, we don't know every detail that's going to happen today or this week or next month or next year. We don't know all the details, but we do know that our God is good. He promises to cause everything to work for our good, and he is in control. Our God is a God who is over history. He arranges and disposes of the events of history. What for? For his purposes to be accomplished on the earth and for his people. See, the outcome is certain. In fact, I want to show you this morning from the Bible uh, many cases where this happens. Let's go through three particular ones, but they all really tie into the same story. And so in the book of Ruth, you can turn there if you have your Bibles. We'll put the verses on the screen as well. The book of Ruth in the Old Testament, just four short chapters if you've never read it. It's worth sitting down and reading, perhaps today or tomorrow morning. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Let's just see what happens in this important story. It says in Ruth 1, 1, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name, names of his two sons were Malan and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. She was left with her two sons. Well, her two sons, they took for themselves Moabite wives, Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And lived there about 10 years. Then both Malan and Chilean also died. And the woman, talking about Naomi, was bereft of her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return to the land, I mean, from the land of Moab, for she heard... In the land of Moab, that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food, so the famine's over. So she departed from that place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. So she's telling them, You guys go home. I'm going back to the land of Israel. So we first meet Ruth as the widowed daughter in law of Naomi, who's also a widow. So the story starts off now Ruth has no husband and she has no children. And Naomi decides that when she's going to return to Judah, she encourages both daughters in law to go back to Moab and find husbands that could, they could then bear children and they could live there. Orpah takes her advice. Orpah returns to Moab, but Ruth refuses. Here's what she says, Ruth chapter 1, verse 16 to 17. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. So Ruth does not want to go back. She wants to stay with Naomi. She loves Naomi, and she has come to know the God of Naomi. 
So she's committed to Naomi. She's committed to Yahweh God, the one true God. Now, without being aware of it, God is now sovereignly ruling Ruth's life. And all she's doing, all Ruth is doing, she doesn't know the big picture. She just is trying to do the next right thing and take care of her mother-in-law. All right, chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened, I underline this phrase here, it's my favorite phrase in the book of Ruth. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. I want you to just notice that phrase, she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. She didn't know that was his field. She wasn't looking for his field. She happened to come to it as she's gleaning in the fields, trying to provide food for her mother-in-law and for herself. And as she is just trying to do the next right thing, God is sovereignly directing her for higher purposes. The truth is there are no coincidences in the life of the one who loves God. They seem to be coincidental encounters, but they're not. Ruth is experiencing, at this point, the providential leading of God. And all she's doing again now, keep in mind, all she's doing is busily trying to provide for her mother-in-law by gleaning in the field. She wasn't looking for a husband. There's no indication she's worried or preoccupied about finding a husband. She's acting like a believer, and God is sovereignly directing her path. Now, on the other side of this, what was going on in the life of Boaz? Well, Boaz knew the scriptures. He knew the Old Testament. He knew Leviticus 19.9. What does that say? Let's read it. Leviticus 19.9 says, Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, neither shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. So Boaz is a righteous man. What is he doing? He's just, he's just doing the next right thing. He's obeying the law. And he's making sure that the poor can come glean his fields. He doesn't take it all for himself. He leaves the corners. So as a righteous man, he's doing the right thing. So now we have two people that all they are doing is trying to do the next right thing. They don't know the whole scheme of things. God does. And God is sovereignly, providentially guiding their path. So this is a story of Ruth and Boaz, a story of two obedient believers who just happen to be in the right place at the right time. So here's the truth. The truth is God just wants to obey us to love him, obey him, trust him. And it's his business to make sure we're in the right place at the right time. So let's see what God is doing. What purpose was God fulfilling here? Was it a big purpose? Let's read the end of the story. Let's go all the way to Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. It says, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord 
enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Let's give down to verse 17. The neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. Of course, to Ruth, but Naomi's line. So they named him Obed. He's the father of Jesse, the father of David. So through Ruth and Boaz would come the great-grandson, King David. Now, and through King David would come the lineage that leads up to the birth of Jesus Christ. So do you see the purposeful leading of our sovereign Lord in this story at this point? So what if Ruth doesn't get into the right field? What if Boaz doesn't follow the law and leave a place for the poor to come glean the field? I mean, there's a thousand what-ifs here. There's 10,000 what-ifs here. But here's the truth of the matter. The truth is, the sovereignty of, in the sovereignty of God, God is bigger than all the what-ifs. See, God had a plan for Ruth and Boaz, a plan that they never fully understood even up to the time of their deaths. All they're doing is living one day at a time, doing the next right thing. I mean, aren't you glad that that's all we really have to focus on? ourselves, that we don't have to know the whole scheme of things. That's God's doing. We just need to be those who love him, trust him, obey him, and do the next right thing. Our job is to walk with God. God's job is he's arranging and he's disposing of circumstances of our lives in great, great detail in order to bring about his plan for our lives, for his purposes on the earth. You know, as you look at the book of Ruth, you can see how God fit everything together. It's really amazing as you study this book. Even though there was famine and drought, God used it to lead, and in his leading brought them to a place of harvest. Even though there was tragedy and loss of life, God used it in his leading and filled their emptiness with fullness of relationship. Even though there was what seemed like coincidental encounters, God used them to lead. And in his leading, he causes these encounters to fulfill his purposes and, and bring good to his people. Even though there was genuine free will, there's all kinds of free will choices made in this book. Even though there's genuine free will, many, many decisions are made, good decisions, bad decisions, but all of them, even the bad ones, God will turn to a good effect for his people. See, the truth is God, God proved to be no enemy to Naomi and Ruth in this story. They may have thought that in the midst of it at times, under the duress of it, but God turned it all for their good and for his purposes. So here's the truth. The truth is that we, you and I can also be sure about this, that the events of our lives are part of a bigger plan. The events of every one of our lives are part of a bigger plan, and it's a good plan. 
Because God is good, and it's when he is in control because he's sitting on a throne, and he's not the least bit nervous. Now, there's no guarantee that in the midst of our story, we're going to understand all the implications of how God is leading in my life. I mean, Ruth and Boaz never saw all that God was doing in bringing them together. They never saw the big picture. And we won't either. But we can be sure of his leading, even if we don't comprehend all the purposes of his leading while we're in the story. Okay, so it leads up to the birth of Christ. All right, I want to look at another story that leads up to the birth of Christ. By the way, these, these passages and really are sorely needed in this present day in which we're living now, the world in which we're living in, I mean, we got rogue nations with nuclear weapons. We got, you know, countless terrorists out there that seems to be very difficult to contain. There's, you know, we got criminals whose, whose crimes are getting darker and darker. We've got concerns about the economy, health care, our deteriorating schools, natural disasters, on and on and on. So in the, word, the words of Gordon Terpstra, he says, to many, our world looks like a train gone out of control. And they're wondering if anyone has their hand on the throttle of the train. Or has the engineer bailed out just as we come in the sight of dead man's curve? See, some of you today, in all honesty in this room, but also online, may be feeling despairing about what's going on in your own world or what's going on in the greater world as you watch the news, discouraged perhaps about what's happening in your personal life, maybe fearful about the future. Well, the Lord wants you to know today that there is reason to hope today. So whether you're talking about what's going on in the world or talking about what's going on in your own life, there's reason to hope. So I want to go back to the story that leads up to the birth of Christ. Now, this time we're going to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, I'm sorry, verse 1 through 17 is a genealogy, one of those that you probably have skimmed over. You probably haven't thought about it much. Let's look at it. Matthew 1, starting verse 1. <clears throat> the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. To Abraham was born Isaac, and to Isaac, Jacob, and to Jacob, Judah, and his brothers. And Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And to Perez was born Hezron, to Hezron, Ram. And to Ram was born Aminadab, and to Aminadab, Nason, and to Nason, Salmon. Yes, I am really going to read this whole genealogy. <laughs> Verse 5, and to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab, and to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth, and to Obed, Jesse, and to Jesse was born David, the king. And to David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And to Solomon was born Rehoboam, and to Rehoboam, Abijah, and to Abijah, Asa, and to Asa was born Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, Joram, and to Joram, Uzziah, and to Uzziah was born Jothan, and to Jothan, Ahaz, to Ahaz, Hezekiah, and to Hezekiah was born Manasseh, to Manasseh, Amen, to Amen, Josiah, and to Josiah were born Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation of Babylon to Jeconiah, was born Sheatil, and to Sheatil, Zerubbabel, and to Zerubbabel was born Abiud, and to Abiud, Eliakim, and to Eliakim, Azor, and to Azor was born Zadok, and to Zadok, Akim, and to Akim, Eliud, and to Eliud was born Eleazar, and to Eleazar, Mathen, and to Mathen, Jacob, and to Jacob 
was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Now notice verse 17. Therefore, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the time of Christ, 14 generations. I want you to notice that this family tree of Jesus has, been, has not been assembled in some haphazard way. What the scriptures tell us in verse 17 is that the family tree of Jesus is perfectly ordered, perfectly planned, and has a powerful evidence of being control, of a controlled flow of history. Here's what it's saying. It's saying that from Abraham to Christ, there is a perfectly planned flow of history. Jesus' birth is the climax of three groupings of 14. Now, numbers are important in the Bible especially when the Bible tells you they're important. Like it does here. So way back in Genesis 17, God said to Abraham, you're going to have a son, your son's going to have a son, another son. And way down the line is going to come the Savior of the world, Messiah. So Matthew summarizes this line of descent by pointing out that it contains three groupings of 14. Now, again, if you do study numbers in the Bible, seven or multiples of seven symbolized perfection. For example, when Israel went into exile in Babylon, God said the perfect completion of their punishment was 70 years. 70 years is 10 multiples of seven. There's also a number in the Old Testament signifying fullness, and that's the number three. That's why in Isaiah... Chapter 6, we see the angels saying, holy, 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 three times, is the Lord. What this is three times symbolizes God's holiness is perfect and it is complete. So the Old Testament, the number 7 and the number 3 were divine numbers of perfection and fullness. And here we have 14, which is a multiple of 7 generations from Abraham to Christ. We have three sets of 14. What's the point of all this? The point is simply this. God was in the control of history. He was in control leading up to the birth of Christ. He perfectly planned it. He controlled it, controlled it meticulously, mathematical, with mathematical care. Since God made his promise to Abraham, he moved history now forward in an orderly, purposeful, perfectly balanced way for the Old Testament history's fulfillment of the birth of Christ. So the first thing I want you to see from this genealogy is it's not haphazard. God is controlling this. God is ordering this. It's a demonstration of God's order. Now, in the midst of the story, it doesn't look very orderly. Now the story's over. We see the order. There's a second thing I want you to notice about this genealogy, and that is this. Not only does God control the flow of history, but God chooses flawed humans as he carries history forward to his goal. I mean, take a look at this, you know, the reason I read this genealogy is because I want you to pay attention to these names for a moment. I mean, this list reads like the roll call now at the county jail. <laughs> this list contains murderers, adulterers, those guilty of incest, prostitution, idol worshipers, cheaters, and liars. 
Let's take a closer look. Abraham, of course, he lies to save his neck. Jacob, Abraham's grandson, cheated his brother, his father-in-law, and his uncle. Judah, Jacob's son, committed incest with his own daughter-in-law, Tamar. Tamar seduced her father-in-law, Judah, and the product of that union was part of the line leading up to Christ. Jesus, you know, is called the, the line of the tribe of Judah, so that makes us think Judah is this great saint. Well, Judah was a hypocrite, and Judah was an adulterer. What about Judah's brothers? They sold their younger brother Joseph into slavery. We talked about that last week. Why? Because they were jealous of him. Jump to verse 6. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. It points that out. What happened to Uriah? How, why is that she was Uriah's wife? Why? Because David had Uriah killed so he could have her as his wife. So David's an adulterer and a murderer, and that's also part of the history leading up to Christ. Boaz's mother was Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. So God uses a prostitute in the line of Christ. Ruth is mentioned. We just read her story. She's a foreigner. She's not even a Jewish. Manasseh makes the list even though his king is so wicked, he sacrificed his own son in the fire to Baal, the false god. He consulted mediums and spiritists. Manasseh shed so much innocent blood that 2 Kings chapter 21 says he was a terror to his own people. But God used Manasseh as part of the history leading up to Christ. His son Ammon on the list, even though Ammon rejected God. A lot of these guys are kings. I mean, half the kings in this list are, are crooks. Most of them worshiped idols. And so this, this, is the, this is the list of Jesus' not-so-good grandparents. So this family tree is not pure. So, so God chooses flawed humans as he's carrying history forward to his son. He used murderers, adulterers, prostitutes, idolaters, cheaters, and liars. Why? Why did God use these people? And he didn't have to. Why did he use these people? Why does God use flawed humans, wicked humans in the line of Christ, humans who stumble and bumble? Why did God use these people? I'll tell you why I think he used them. I think he used people like, like that because he knew that you and I watched the news last night. And we saw all the bad stuff and all the crooked people. And he knew that we would fret. Is everything going to turn out right? It looks like the train is about to leave the tracks. He knew we'd worry about how, where history is going. And he wants us to know that even when it looks like the whole world has gone wild, he's still calm and he's still in control. You want proof of that? Just read the last name on this list. Jesus. No other names listed, no other names needed. So God did it. God did just what he said he would do. The plan succeeded. He controlled the flow of history, even in the midst of flawed humans. He still led up to what he wanted to accomplish, the birth of the Savior. I want you to think about that. The famine in Egypt couldn't starve out his plan. 400 years of slavery in Egypt couldn't shackle his plan. Wilderness wanderings couldn't misdirect his plan. Babylonian exile for 70 years couldn't contain his plan. Murderers, adulterers, prostitutes, cheaters, idolaters, liars, and the very line of Christ could not stop his plan. So God's plan can't be thwarted. There's no, there's no force that can thwart the plan, no evil force. God even works through 
sinners, even out of the evil. God has this orderly plan. He moves history forward to the fullness when Christ will be born. So if the news has gotten you a bit discouraged, and I talk to people all the time that I know it's, it's, it's hard not to be discouraged. For me as well, I watch and go, goodness, Lord, where's all this going? Now, times like that, I've got to remember this, this story. You know, it does look like we're headed to dead man's curve, but the engineer, capital E, has not abandoned the train. So if you're tempted to think, what is God doing in the world? What's it coming to? Then at that time, I'd like you to remember this genealogy. God is still purposely moving human history forward, just as he did in the Old Testament. All right, one more short story about the birth of Christ. In the sovereignty of God, Luke chapter 2. Here we go. Luke chapter 2. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up to, from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, what a coincidence. The days were completed for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, remember, back in the Old Testament, God purposed the Messiah would be born where? Bethlehem. But where are Joseph and Mary living? Nazareth. So how is God going to get Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem so prophecy could be fulfilled, Messiah would be born to Bethlehem? How is he going to get him there? Is he going to give him a dream and say, wake you know, in the night, Joseph, you better get, get, get Mary and get to Bethlehem before she has a baby? No dream happened. Was there an angelic visitation saying, Joseph, you better get to Bethlehem? No, that didn't happen. So how is God going to get them to Bethlehem? Was it their Old Testament knowledge? Were they having a quiet time? And studying, you know, the prophets and going, oh, my gosh, we're in the wrong town? <laughs> is that how it happened? No. So what did God do? How did God get them there? You know what he did? He used the laws of a wicked government. The decrees of greedy leaders to accomplish his purposes. Caesar Augustus had no idea he was helping out the will of God. All he wanted to do was take a census. Why? So he could more effectively and efficiently tax the people. But God had a plan, and Caesar is swept up into the plan of God. In fact, Caesar's very decrees would be used by God to accomplish his plan. Did Mary and Joseph have any idea what was going on? I don't think they had any idea what was going on at that time, at that moment. They were being directed by the sovereign hand of God through circumstances that they didn't even realize. So here we have governmental leaders making unrighteous decisions, and God is still accomplishing his purposes down to the specifics of having each of his people in just the right place at just the right time. 
And doesn't your Bible say that he's the same today, yesterday, and forever? He still does that today. He's still superintending his purposes to such detail that he can have each one of us, his people, you and me, in the right place at the right time to accomplish his purposes, which include his glory and our good. And nothing can stop it. Nothing. I don't know what's going to happen in the future of this country, but I'm not nervous about it. I don't know what's going to happen to this economy. I don't know what's going to happen with the next natural disaster. I don't know what the next terrorist is up to. I don't know how these next elections are going to turn out. But I do know the future of those who believe in Jesus Christ is good. Because God is good. He promises to turn everything for our good. And he is in control. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not going to be times of famine or drought or economical downturn. That doesn't mean that our futures are going to be without the loss of life or tragedy or sadness. I mean, those times have to be endured to see what God will do at the end. See, if those, those things didn't happen, you know, without those things happening in Moab, the deaths and all that, the marriage of Ruth and Boaz would have never taken place. <clears throat> all the pieces of our lives fit together in a much bigger scheme, and we're in the midst of it, and we don't see the big scheme. We don't. But God does. God is orchestrating it all for our good and for his glory. So here is the truth. The truth is your future is a blessed one. You know, Christ, your future is overwhelmingly blessed. No matter what happens on the news tonight, you don't have to fret. You're in God's hands. God's in control. So when shakings come, and shakings are coming, there's more shakings coming. When shakings come, don't be stirred. Our God is in control. He's working everything out for his purposes, for his glory, and for our good. He's on the throne, and he's not nervous. He's in control. Now, my focus in this message has been three accounts really focused on the birth of Christ. I want you to see that throughout Old Testament history, it seemed all haphazard, but God was controlling things. But I want to remind you that there's a second coming of Christ. And just like we look at the news and wonder how this, it looks like it's totally out of control, that God is still controlling everything leading up to the second coming of Christ. He is purposefully ordering everything to be in the exact place it needs to be. All the generations leading up, just like the culmination of Bethlehem, leading up to the second coming of Christ, coming on the clouds. God will bring forth his purposes. Despite what every evil man is doing, every evil spirit is doing, God is working his sovereign plan of salvation and bringing history together just like he's purposed. And part of that includes his plan for you and his plan for me. Now, if all that is true, and it is, I mean, I can take a deep breath and I can be at peace. And I can trust my good God who's in control. Amen? Let's stand together. Just close your eyes, if you would, as we pray.
Father, you know exactly uh, everyone's story. You know our story. You know the beginning of our story. You know the middle. You know the end of the story. But right now, Lord, we're in the middle of the story. And Lord, we just are going to believe the truth of your word. We're going to believe what you say is true. That you're good all the time. And that you are in control. And right now, whatever your situation is, whatever it is that's causing you to be anxious and fretful and concerning, and just let's just give it to him right now. Just give it to him and say, Lord, I'm trusting you with this. I don't, I don't see, I don't, I don't see how this is going to work. But I trust you. I'm trusting you're good and you're in control. I'm trusting you, Lord, even in the midst of tragedies and famines and loss of life. Lord, I don't, I don't know how good can come out of it when we're in the middle of the story, but, Lord, we're trusting you that by the end of the story, you keep all your promises. So just give it to him again. Just give him your confidence, your trust, that he's got it. So, Lord, I believe you got this. I don't know how. I don't need to know how, but I believe you've got this. And I trust you. I trust you. And Father, as we close, we just uh, we do pray, Lord, you would speed up things on the earth to bring about fulfillment of all your promises. Would you speed up the fulfillment of the Great Commission to all the peoples of the earth? Would you speed up, Lord? fulfillment of all your promises to Israel, to nations. You speed up, Lord, making the church ready, a bride ready to meet the bridegroom. Would you speed it up, Lord? Because we just long to see your face. And we long for that time when you do bring all of this to a good ending. Our story and the big story, history, your story. Before we dismiss, if you need prayer, there'll be some leaders up front that'll be pray for you. Also, if you have any questions for our staff and you still want to be in one of our Knowing God small groups, you can go to this Connection Coffee Corner. And also, if this is your first Sunday here, I'd love to meet you up here in the welcome corner up here. So please pop up there. Father, we just now look forward to how you're going to lead our lives. Lord, we, we thank you in advance for all you're going to do because we know it's for our good. And, Lord, we just ask that you would get the glory. Pray in Jesus' name. And everybody says, amen. amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.